that's Psalm 75. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth trotters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked on the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Matthew 26, starting at 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Uh, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came round and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, for the last four weeks, we've been in an unusual place uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, We're really here to speak about God. We cover week by week issues that have to do with the character of God. We explore the love of God, his faithfulness, his goodness, kindness, holiness, grace. For the last few weeks, we've been considering the justice of God, and more specifically, God's determination to punish sin. And we all believe in justice, from the fan on the terrace, oi ref, 
to the candidate hearing their exam results, I demand a remark. To the aggrieved in court, there must be an appeal. I don't know how much you follow the news. This week has been all about justice. Valdo Calacane in Nottingham with those three victims crying out at the injustice of it that he wasn't tried for full-degree murder. And then on Friday, the execution by nitrogen gas of Kenneth Eugene Smith. I spoke at a justice service in Norwich Cathedral a number of years ago now. The issue was justice, and we paraded into the cathedral with all the judges and the other legal bigwigs in their various different forms of uh, judicial attire, I turned to one of them who was wearing a pair of rather fetching breeches and said to him that if he was caught wearing those in Soho on a Saturday night, he might be arrested. Not a flicker. He didn't see the funny side of it at all. But in that, in that sermon on the issue of justice, I quoted from Miroslav Volf, a survivor of the Bosnian genocide, who was professor of um, theology in Yale. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that God's refusal to judge results in human nonviolence. In a sunny, in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, it invariably dies, together with all other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. In other words, you must hold that God judges. If you let go of the idea that there is ultimate justice, then everything goes out of the window. And if you believe in a God who will not judge, then such belief will never stand. One of the reasons for the wholesale collapse of the English church following the Second War. So our subject has been God's judgment and justice, and our subject has been hell. And God believes in judgment, and God will Punish sin justly, and God's verdict is always perfect. His punishment meets the crime, and justice will be done. The series arose from my own personal studies in Matthew's Gospel as we were preaching through them on a Tuesday lunchtime, and it struck me as I was considering this January just how frequently Jesus teaches on the subject of God's judgment and of hell. 30 direct references in Matthew's gospel alone, from the lips of Jesus. Jesus believes in hell. People go to hell, according to Jesus, and hell is forever. But after three weeks on the subject, today we come to the glorious reality that Jesus saves from hell. And of all the scenes in the New Testament, the one recorded in Matthew 26 that we've just had read is perhaps the most intense emotionally charged and poignant. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there with his disciples, moments before his arrest, stepping aside with the three closest disciples in deep distress. The word sorrowful is acute grief. The word troubled is dismayed, bewildered, heavy with distress. Elsewhere we read that uh, sweat drop from his forehead like great drops of blood. But that scene, verse 36 through 46, is preceded by a record of the failure of Peter. And that sets the context with Peter's failure either side of Jesus praying that this dreadful cup might be taken from him. 
So verse 31, Jesus said to the disciples, you'll all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because you, I will never fall away. Truly, I say to you before this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So our first point, you and I deserve the judgment of God that fell on Jesus. That verse 31 is a quote from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied that God's shepherd, the true king and leader of his people, would be deserted by all his followers. None would stand with him. Jesus insists that this will happen, and it's precisely what took place. Push forward to the other side of the Garden of Gethsemane, and you see there in verses 69 and 70, Peter denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And again in verse 71 and 72, this man was with Jesus, and again he denied it with an oath. I don't know, don't know the man. And then the bystanders uh, accuse him. You too are one of them for your accent betrays you. He began to invoke a curse on himself to swear, I do not know the man. And so this failure by Peter, well, it's a moral failure. He lies. I don't know him. And this failure by Peter is a spiritual failure. He's denying Jesus Christ, Christ, the Son of God, whom he has declared, truly, you are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And this failure by Peter is repeated three times. It's a repeated failure. It's a failure of courage. It's before a slave girl, just the bystanders, It's a failure at the deepest level. It took place again and again and again. He had time to reconsider. Oh, I blew it. And it's a failure of resolve. He's been warned. He's insisted he wouldn't do it. And he does it nonetheless. Peter, of course, is no axe murderer. Peter is no criminal. Peter is a decent man, a family man, an upright man. We meet Peter early on with his father and his colleagues at his fishing business. Peter is with his mother-in-law. Peter is an independent and a strong man. Some paint Peter almost as a buffoon. He's a man of action, headstrong, impetuous, but he's a good man. He's the best of men. And here on either side of Jesus' torment in the garden, as Jesus goes before the high priest and Jesus stands tall and courageous, Peter, this, if you like, representative man, it could be you, it could be me, Peter fails. It's in all the Gospels. It's striking that, isn't it? Mark recorded Peter's testimony for him in Mark's Gospel. And you can imagine Peter... Mark, you must include this. You won't forget it, will you? Matthew, the earliest of the gospel writers, just at the moment when you might expect the disciples to be painting the the other disciples in the best possible light, I did not know the man. Uh, I mentioned before my friend who was a very, very brave soldier indeed led his battalion in one, one of the worst moments in Helmand province. Um, losing a number of soldiers uh, during that tour. I interviewed him here about his Christian faith, and he made the point. He said, William, all of us have a dark side that we don't like to talk about. And so let's consider our own dark side for a moment, because I think Peter 
in the text here encourage us to do so. You know, we're quite good at trumpeting our own success. We promote our own profile. One rarely finds a page or a post like this one. I did not know the man. He began to invoke a curse on himself. I did not know the man, truly. I had to write a CV this week. Don't worry, I'm not applying for a new job. I'm not on the move. Or maybe you were just rejoicing quietly for a second there. But, you know, there have been plenty of dark moments in my life. I'm not going to tell you about them. They're none of your business. But I didn't put a single one of them on my CV. Nor would you. And as we consider the moral failure, well, all of us will have had moments like Peter's. And as we consider the failure of resolve, we've determined not to do that thing again and again. Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation, says Jesus. He comes back and finds them asleep. And as we consider the failure of loyalty, who has not in one way or another, in one relationship or another, in business at home, with parents, with a loved one, failed in relationship and loyalty. And then there's the failure of courage when we should have spoken. And most of all, the spiritual failure. He denied his Lord, God. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Genesis 6 verse 5, God saw that the heart of man was only evil all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 8, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These defile a person. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Peter, the typical man or woman. Now, it is in that context that we come to the Garden of Gethsemane and this intense moment, Jesus satisfied the judgment of God as it fell on Jesus at the cross. This takes us into the Garden. As I say, it's one of the most poignant and emotionally charged moments in the whole of the Bible. Here is Jesus, Jesus on the night before his death, Jesus with his disciples and particularly his three closest, anticipating the horrors ahead. What is it that causes such distress? It has to be the cup, verse 37. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again in verse 42, again for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same, same words. Now the language of the cup in the Bible refers to a number of things. It can just be a cup. It can be used to speak of a person's lot in life. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. It can be used to speak of blessing that flows to a person. My cup overflows. But more often it is used in the Bible and on the lips of Jesus 
to speak of the just wrath and anger of God expressed personally and unrelentingly against sin. Jeremiah speaks of this, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. It's there in Psalm 75, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord's cup of his wrath. Because God is just, so God must judge. Because God is fair, so God must just ev- judge everyone fairly. Because God judges everyone fairly, so all sin must be punished. Because the wages of sin is wrath, God's anger at every infringement of his holy law is poured out in just judgment on sinners. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus drinks to its dregs the cup of God's wrath. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My father, this, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Here is Jesus on the eve of his death, God the Son, the Son of God. He has no sin of his own. Jesus deserves no punishment. Jesus anticipates the chorus and he willingly commits to drinking to its dregs the cup of God's anger at human sin. So the cross can be described as any number of things. The cross is an example. It's a wonderful example of the humility, the selflessness, the sacrifice, and the service of God. The cross is victory. At the cross, through carrying the judgment we deserve, Jesus dealt the death blow to Satan and all his evil forces. The cross is reconciliation. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross is redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Above everything else, from Jesus' own lips here in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the cross, he carried in and on himself the just judgment and wrath of God at our human sin. Jesus satisfied the judgment of God as he carried it on the cross. The technical term for this, for those of you taking notes, which is good to see some of you, is propitiation. Propitiation Propitiation is described in in, in the dictionary as appeasement. That is incorrect. Appeasement is simply to calm somebody down, to appease them to make them kind of less angry through some act of appeasement. I'm particularly busy. I fail to remember that Janet and I have invited 10 people to dinner. I arrive home half an hour after the time when the first guests guests appeared. Janet is quite rightly and suitably slightly unhappy. You may never have seen Janet slightly unhappy, nor have I. Maybe I have. Anyway, whatever. I produce from behind me a bunch of flowers and she's calmed down. I mean, that's appeasement. This is not appeasement. There's no justice in appeasement. Sweeping sin under the carpet and pretending it didn't happen. Calm down, God. 
This is Jesus satisfactorily carrying in his own body and soul on the cross the just punishment for your sin and mine. Here is my definition of what went on on the cross for what it's worth. A sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying, substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. A sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying, substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Last week, I quoted from John Stott, one of the great Christian leaders of the mid to late 20th century. What not many people know is that there was a guy who worked, as it were, alongside John Stott uh, when he was a much younger man in the works he was involved in called John Edison. John Edison determined to give his whole life to teaching the Christian message to nine to 13-year-olds probably why many of us wouldn't have heard of him. People say that Ed, John Ed, as he was known, was every bit the intellectual, spiritual equal of John Stott. Listen to this children's song that we sing as adults. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love is and justice mingle, truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. It's brilliant, isn't it? And there are five verses. It does raise the question, how can Jesus' death on the cross pay the punishment of sin when hell is eternal and Jesus' death is apparently temporary? I think there are several ways of answering that. One, that the ongoing rebellion of the sinner in hell, in one sense, requires that hell's punishment is eternal because the rebelliousness of the sinner never changes. Two, the intensity of the punishment Jesus endured and the degree to which he was punished as the eternal son of God who had lived in eternity in perfect union with the eternal father means that he suffered at that cross for that period an intensity and a completeness of suffering. Uh, that satisfied God's justice. But this raises for some the question as to whether Jesus is a willing party. So we deserve the punishment, Jesus paid the punishment, and the punishment he paid, he paid willingly as part of the purpose and plan of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's drill down now into the verses in more detail. And as we look at them, we can see Jesus is willing, obedient, deliberate, Death, willing. Verse 39 is a clear expression of Jesus' own will. Let's take it from 38. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus expressly makes clear that it is his will to surrender to the will of the Father. He subsumes his personal will to that of his Father's will. Jesus' death is nothing if not willing. And we find the same in verse 42. It's not that the Father is bullying or bulldozing the Son. There's a guy called Steve Chalk, a very famous Christian, who's famous through his broadcasting, who suggested in one of his, his books that the idea that Jesus carried the wrath of God is the equivalent of some sort of cosmic child abuse, absolutely not. Jesus, eternally co-equal with God the Father, willingly submits his own will to that of the Father's will as a matter of choice. It's really explicit in John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So he does it willingly. And he does it obediently. My Father, this, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's the most supreme act of absolute perfect obedience as the Lord Jesus, fully God, in full perfection, having lived out a life of perfection, determines of his own will to submit himself to the purpose of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to carry the wrath of God in our place. And he goes there deliberately. He sets his face for Jerusalem. He anticipates his death in Jerusalem. He will not turn for Jerusalem. He knows his end is at Jerusalem. And he sets his face in courageous obedience, willingly, for the cross. So as opposed to Peter, notice his resolve, his anticipation of the cross, and yet he goes through with it. As opposed to Peter, notice his courage, The more you look at Jesus, the more courageous you see that he is. As opposed to Peter, look at his integrity and his loyalty, his concern for you and me, that we should not experience the horrors and ravages of hell. He determines to go to hell, as it were, in our place and carry the wrath and judgment of God, the loyalty, the obedience, and above all, the love. One friend of mine talks about, you know, the magnifying glass. I'm sure as kids, please don't try this at home, but you'll remember trying it at home, even though mum and told you, mum and dad told you you shouldn't. You find the magnifying glass. You know, you're sitting in the window. The sun is coming through the window. You get the magnifying glass. You can get that tiny little spot and you can set light, you know, to anything you like, really, as it concentrates the beams of the sun to this tiny red hot searing speck and it's as if all the wrath of God the Father at all the sin that you and I have ever committed is focused down onto the cross as Jesus carries the eternal punishment 
that all humanity deserves. Which leaves us then with the final concluding observation. We can be saved. What is the name of Jesus? What does it mean? You shall give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord Jesus entered into the world seeing the plight of humanity in order to die on the cross to carry the judgment that you and I deserve so that we need not experience hell. And in a sense, Jesus might say, well, you can go to hell, but only over my dead body. Let's pray together. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for the obedience, the willing sacrifice, and above all, the love of Jesus. We praise you that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. And I pray that not one of us would choose to walk away from Jesus, rather that we would surrender to him and take for ourselves the grace and forgiveness that he offers. In Jesus' name, amen. So William, I think we've got a question that covered the series, really. For, for some of them, you may want to refer back to what you um, have said before. Are paradise and heaven different places? Would you explain Shale, Hades, etc.? Thank you very much. Um, well, as far as I understand it, and there are, the difficulty is there are one or two places, and I won't go into those now, where it slightly crosses over. But uh, as far as I understand it, you have Shale, which then translates into Hades in the New Testament. Shale's the Old Testament where people go when they die, and Hades is the place where you go in anticipation of final judgment. So, for example, the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, he is in torment in Hades. That is, his soul is awaiting the resurrection from the dead when our bodies will be raised, our bodies and souls reunited, and those who have rejected the love and rule of Christ then go to hell. So you could call in that, to that extent Hades, if you like, a waiting chamber. Um, heaven and paradise are actually the same thing. They're two words, the same thing, which is the equivalent on the other side. So paradise, think of uh, the thief on the cross, Jesus' response, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the language that uh, the New Testament uses for the waiting chamber, as it were, for our souls as we are consciously in the presence of the Lord Jesus, but prior to the resurrection of the physical resurrection on the last day. On the last day, then our bodies will be raised, our souls will be reunited with our bodies, and then we will exist in eternity in the new creation, also known as the new heavens and the new earth. So I would understand heaven and paradise to be essentially the same thing, Hades and Sheol to be very similar, Hell to be the place where those who are waiting and awaiting final judgment go to if they are outside of Christ and the new creation or the new heavens and the earth for those who are in heaven stroke paradise awaiting the resurrection from the dead.
Have I got that wrong? That's very helpful. Yeah. Were you listening? I was. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Just checking, just checking. <laughs> By the way, this book, you know, it's a very, very good book. And I reckon Andrew might even let you have it for six quid. But if we order a lot of them, if we order a lot of them, five fifty, I don't know, I don't know. But I know his boss very well, so I'll make it up with, with Jonathan. They make uh, a lot of money on these books, so... Again, I'll put a few questions together. You did address this before, but mentioned it today. Does the Bible say people keep sinning in hell anywhere? Um, is hell eternal because mankind keeps sinning forever or because sin deserves eternal punishment? Yeah, Where both. does it say God is punishing I think, hell? I think I'd say both to that. Is hell eternal because mankind keeps sinning and also hell deserves it, uh, sin deserves eternal punishment? But there is that kind of set, and I think it's that mindset, that set of mind that is then uh, decided at the point of death. Actually, I think it's often decided long before that as somebody resolutely determines they will have nothing to do with God. And that is then set. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. That's Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. Again, actually the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is very helpful. Being in Hades in torment and couldn't you send somebody across? And uh, the Lord responds and says, no, absolutely not. No, this, there, is a, there is an unpassable chasm between us and you, says Abraham to, uh, to, to, to the rich man, Dives, as he's known by some in, in, in Hades. So, it, yes, it is a one-way street. There is no return. There is a day of judgment. And our decisions are treated as serious by God. Now, I think that is something that is very um, fearfully wonderful, that God takes, God takes us more seriously than anybody else we will ever meet. And when we take a decision, he treats it as a decision, as he t- treats it seriously. I don't think there's anybody else who takes us with that level of seriousness. And it's a wonderful thing that there is somebody who actually kind of recognizes my kind of rebellious will, and yet it's fearful. Um, How do we think through your point when you talked about the eternality of hell when some say it isn't? Uh, The Bible sometimes seems to suggest both how can we work out what we should think? Yes, I don't think the Bible does suggest both. Um, and uh, I think you just need to go, keep going back to the key text and ask yourself, can you um, explain this any other way than that it, it is an eternal reality? Um, for example, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't think you can argue that any other way than as it sounds when it is written. Um, In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm in completely wrong part of the Bible. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I've lost it. I'm so sorry. Come back to me in a minute on that one. I'll keep looking. Oh, yes. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So I think I would just want to... I mean, I said it last week. 
You know, you can't be away from the Lord unless you're actually, you exist. And, and then most persuasively, I think, in Matthew chapter 25, the last verse, 46, some will go away to eternal life and others to eternal punishment. And if you argue that one is not everlasting, how can you possibly argue that the other is? Um, question just on that, really. How do you, or remind us how you explained that God is there in hell when there's this language of separation and distance. Yeah, I know, that's right. Well, you, I mean, actually, this guy, Edward Donnelly, puts it very well, I think, when he says, you know, there can be a huge distance between somebody even when you are actually... Um, kind of geographically present. I think I would want to say that God is present over hell. Um, have I? Is that fudging the issue? No, I don't think so. I think you, there's an element of it. If you understand God to be good, it's frightening to hear think that he won't be there, so you'll be away from all his mm-hmm. goodness. But you can't escape that God is sovereign and doing all of this. And, and he is... He is the ongoing punishment of hell is an ongoing expression of God's wrath. You, and you can't escape that as you look at all the different references. And I've just quoted a few of them there, which is what makes it so terrifying. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of questions. This was a couple of weeks ago on the levels of punishment or of accountability for hell. Quite a few along the lines of if we've realized that, surely we should stop telling people because we're only making it worse for them. Quite a few questions. Should I stop inviting people to events once they've said no a certain number of times? Questions along that line. How should knowing that level of responsibility affect our interaction? With yeah, well, Jesus doesn't. On that understanding, Jesus has never have come. And there is no salvation outside of Jesus. And, and that's why Jesus came. And so we keep speaking to people because we want them to be saved. Not a matter of saying, oh, well, I want you to have a little less punishment in hell. That's, I think, a little obtuse, um, if you don't I mean, with all due um, deference to, to the question. I, I think, you know, actually, we're, we're, and, and also we need to think of it's about the glory of Jesus, that the Lord Jesus, God has planned for the Lord Jesus a host of disciples who are recreated and remade for his glory. And so it's not simply about us, if you sort of mean, and about a person's comfort. It's actually about the glory of God. And um, one of my favorite verses I go back to, to remind myself of again and again is in Psalm 16, where, um, where, where God speaks about um, his pleasure and in the inheritance in his people. And that's what God is about. He's about winning a people for the Lord Jesus. Uh, so if a person never hears of Jesus, they can never be saved. And we are longing and looking for people to be saved. There's a different question about do you go banging on to somebody who will not repent? And uh, you know that, that may require just holding fire and continuing in prayer for a period. Uh, if we speak about hell with unbelievers, we get accused of all kinds of things. Should we speak about hell? And if so, how? Well, we certainly should. I mean, we absolutely should. And I think we need to be gentle in sa- and loving in saying, look, we do believe, I do believe that there is an accountability to come and a judgment and God will punish sin. 
So, yes, and I think, but lovingly, like we do, you know, in any other way, I think people standing on London Bridge shouting, you know, as they do about coming wrath, it maybe it'll be helpful for some, but I don't think it's helpful to the kind of people I'm trying to reach. And But I will warn them of coming judgment. And it stands to reason, you know, expect accountability in every other area. And so I think in your schools, yes, you should talk about it. And at the universities, yes, we should. And in the workplace, yes, we should lovingly warn people that there is a judgment to come. What do you, how would you answer that, Aaron? Like that. That's not where <laughs> we could chat more. I think um, there's so many questions. We are Good. simply not going to cover them. But I and William and no doubt others will be very happy to chat after. Some of these are very direct and personal, so please come over the mm-hmm. road and we'll do that. But while we're here, William, two more questions, yes, I yes. think. The just, first... just before, we, before, you'll visit the thing, put your order in for a very cheap copy of Edward Donnelly's book um, from Andrew there, and then I'll come across and take any questions you like over... over, over, over William might be on commission anyway. Um, <laughs> Carswell, Carswell never <laughs> gives commission. I tell you, he's too um, tight for that. Okay. Two questions to go. First one to say, I'm scared of hell. What would you say? Turn to Jesus. I mean, um, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, it's a glorious reality. Just moments after his warning to Capernaum, Chorazin and Bethesda, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. So this is what's such an extraordinary thing, that the Lord Jesus, on the one hand, will be warning, and on the other hand, offering. But in a sense, I think we should all be rightly scared of hell. You know, I mean, it's the most awful prospect. Then come to Jesus, and you can be absolutely safe in him. Last one. I mean, you've mentioned this in the series, but William, if we really believed this as believers, what difference would it make? Well, I think five, I mean, five, five things. You know, one, we recognize the godness of God. This outrageous idea that somehow we are able to be masters and mistresses of our own destiny. And it is, it's the third oldest lie in the book from Genesis chapter three, actually, verses five and six. It's shocking. No, God is the one who decides and determines our destiny. Two, the seriousness of sin. It will make us flee from sin because actually toying with, cherishing sin is um, part of the old life. We've cut it off. We're no longer part of that. We're living for Jesus and it will drag us away from him, which is the only place of safety. Three, a love of Jesus, a personal delight in Jesus you know, his courage, his resolve, his integrity, his loyalty, his love. You, know, you just look at Jesus. He's so, I mean, it's so patronizing, it's wrong to say it, but admirable in every regard. So, you know, a heightened delight in Jesus. Uh, four, a, a real concern for the lost. You know, you come in tomorrow on that train, you look around you, um, you know, head to school tomorrow, sit in that classroom. Real people are going to hell. You know, a deep concern for the lost. And then five, a courage to speak it. We have, we are both in God, we belong to God, and we have the gospel of God, which is glorious good news. So nothing can shake us, we're in God. 
No one can destroy us. We're eternally in God. And we have the gospel of God, which will give us great courage.